welcome to Saturday Morning Rewind, a show dedicated to the love of animation and feeling like a kid again. So let's go back in time to when cats defended Third Earth. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror that flaps in the night. And knowing was half the battle. Yo, Joe! Let's go back with Saturday Morning Rewind and your host, Tim Nidell. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Saturday Morning Rewind. Of course, I am your host, Tim Nadell. I would love it if you guys took some time out of your day and followed me on Instagram and Twitter. Just type in at Saturday Rewind. That's for the show. I have a personal one. It's at T. Nidell. And of course, you can follow us online at SaturdayMorningRewind.com. And first of all, thank you guys so very much for your patience I know a brand new episode has not hit in a couple months, and I'm sorry for that. I got busy preparing for the Reno convention that I hosted three panels for, and then just got busy with life, you know? Sometimes you gotta take a little break. And of course, thank you to my Patreon supporters for the month of November and December. Mike Clemens, Gamma Bright, Tori Garvin, q 40 You guys are epic. I love you guys for the continued support, and remember, you too can help us Along our journey, just go to our donation tab on our website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. Donations start at only 2 bucks a month. But anyways, enough of that stuff. I am here with a brand new interview, and man, it is an amazing, amazing interview. And I thought, because of the brand new Star Wars movie coming out this week, it's just perfect that we get somebody on the show who actually worked on the original movies. And so I reached out and got one of my all-time favorite Star Wars characters on the show. And of course, I'm talking about the one and only Tim Rose, who was the original puppeteer and creator of Admiral Akbar. But he didn't stop there in Star Wars. He did so many other amazing things. He was the puppeteer for Slacious Crumb, who is also one of my all-time favorite characters on the, on the movies. And he was also the puppeteer for Sice Noodles. The man is truly a Star Wars legend in the galaxy. But it really doesn't stop there. I mean, he worked on a lot of Jim Henson things. He worked on Dark Crystal, Labyrinth. He even helped build and was a master puppeteer for Howard the Duck. A movie that gets a lot of crap from a lot of people. But I have a lot of amazing fond memories of it. So I enjoy it for what it is. And honestly, he has one of the best stories I've heard in a long time. It has to do with Robin Williams. Actually, he was supposed to be the voice of Howard the Duck, and I had no clue. So stay tuned for that story and many, many others. You will not be disappointed because this man can tell some amazing stories. But before I play the interview, I just want to just quickly say that this episode is being dedicated to friend of the show, Carol Spinney who, of course, you know is the uh, original puppeteer and voice of Big Bird, and he sadly just passed away just last week. And it hit me incredibly hard. He was on the show twice, I think maybe six months apart each from both interviews, and the man just he touched my heart both times I interviewed him, and I don't know if I've really told this story on the podcast, but the second time I interviewed him, I could tell his health 
was slipping. And honestly, I had to mute my mic quite a bit because I had some tears flowing behind the scenes. I, I, I could tell he wasn't doing the greatest. And it really hit me to know that somebody that I've grown up with and admired since I was born in 1980 was probably not going to be here much longer. And it hit me hard. So, Carol, love you, man. Thank you for being part of our show. You will not be forgotten. Thank you so much for your hard work. But with that being said, this is one heck of an interview. I loved it. I, I can I can sit and talk with Tim Rose for many more hours than I did and hear many more stories. So hope you guys enjoy it. Here is my interview with Tim Rose. Wow, you've interviewed a few friends of mine, haven't you? Oh, yeah? Yeah, I have, yeah. I yeah. looked on your website. Yeah, Lou Hirsch you got on there. Oh, yeah, no, that was one of my favorite recent interviews. That's a great one. He and I did uh, a show called Gophers. Gophers? What was that about? It, well, it was a British show that you never got over here because uh-huh. the American... Lou and I were hired specifically for our American accents. And it was an American gopher family. They were all full-body suit puppets. You know, this was back <laughs> quite days when they were doing dinosaurs TV show okay. and that sort of thing. Yep. So it was an American gopher family that moves over to England, lives next to a British rabbit family. And the problems of the two different ways of living with one's neighbors that ensued. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really good and there was interest from America for it. Well, we showed it in Britain. There was interest from America, but the Americans wanted to overvoice this all. Interesting. And the British guy said, oh, I'm not letting you overvoice them. They did a fabulous <laughs> job. He was very happy with the work we had done. And so they wouldn't buy it because they couldn't make it theirs, you know. Yeah, it's too bad. It sounds like it would have been interesting to watch at least. Oh, yeah. They do that all the time, you know. Americans of course, steal British stuff and oh yeah, look at the office and so like many it other was American in the first place. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I I I don't live anywhere because I've I was brought up in America, but I've now lived nearly forty years in Britain. So I've actually lived in Britain for more years than America. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see why you can made my loyalties very strange. Yeah, I, I, and I can hear your, I can hear an accent, but then again, if I heard it on the street, I wouldn't question it. You know, it's not so strong. No, most people think I'm Canadian, which is oh yeah, because I know all the right words for being in Britain, <laughs> but I still say them with my American <laughs> accent. Oh boy, yeah, reminds me of one time I went to. So I, I actually live in Montana right now, and mm-hmm. one time. I went back to my well, high school. you don't s- sound Montana. So. No, I, I've lived everywhere. I've lived in California, Nevada. I mainly grew up in Nevada, in Reno. But I also went to high school in Florida, a very northern part of Florida. So they have a really strong southern accent. And I went yeah, yeah, back. I lived in Georgia for a while. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so you know that accent. So I, I went back, and some dude, he wanted to fight me, swearing us from New York. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good enough reason to start of a fight course. with somebody. Of course yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so our show is all about going back and reliving childhoods. That's what. I, that's why I started the show about eight years ago now. And so mm-hmm. what kind of a childhood did you have? Were you always into, like, puppetry? Or what other interests did you have as a kid? 
No, I didn't discover the puppets till I needed to work out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Okay. Actually, I told that. That's that's a lie. Oh, there we go. My first lie of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I I said that. Um, my biggest fan, my mother. She got me interviewed by the local paper, and I said that to the local paper. Next thing we knew, my second grade school teacher showed up with a photograph of the puppet show that we did in her class oh, in wow. second grade. <laughs> wow. So I had I had experienced puppets before, but didn't even remember myself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so what other stuff were you into as a kid? Um, well, being a boy, really, I grew up in the country here, so going as camping as much as possible, trying mm-hmm. to get to the top of the highest mountain. Um, you know, wanted to be a pioneer. I even run around in the woods with no shoes and socks on because, you know, I'd heard that's the way the Indians did it. So <laughs> I <laughs> tried to toughen my feet up so I could be an Indian. There you, you go. Know, the usual thing. Yeah. We I... had Roman um, battles. I, I grew up on a Methodist church camp. My dad was the caretaker there. Okay. Um about two miles down the road from where I am at the moment. And um, we had a creek running through there, and we had about six rowboats. And all the kids would come from after school to my house because I had the coolest house. You know. <laughs> and um, we'd go two, three people per rowboat, and we'd take off up river and down river and around the back of the island, and we'd make uh, mud balls. And then we'd come out, like the Roman triremes with one person rowing and the other person slapping the side of the wooden hull and then we'd all head towards each other and reenact the wow. <laughs> ancient battle with our mud balls. <laughs> wow, that's pretty awesome. The reason I ended up getting the career I got was my dad was always into radio-controlled airplanes. Oh, that makes sense. So although I had a university education and acting and directing and art and all that stuff, I can honestly say that the job I've done was I was able to do because of what I learned playing on the floor of his workshop. He was making model airplanes, and I was making the monitor in the Merrimack and trying to reenact the Civil War naval battle, you know, and that sort of thing. So. Wow. What age was that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Kid age? <laughs> 10, 11? That's pretty cool. So, tell me about that first step into puppetry. What age were you when you first hit that real big step well I was down the road here too um, we have uh, Ulster County Community College I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up so I didn't want my folks to spend a load of money on an education that I didn't even know if I would use and it was a lot cheaper going to this two year college down the road because I could stay at home And I went in there thinking I would be a graphics major because I'd really enjoyed art classes and I wasn't half bad at drawing and sculpting. And while I was working on night maintenance there, one of my friends came through the uh, cafeteria we were cleaning and he was going to audition for a play. And I had been drinking vodka at the time and thought that it would be really fun to go audition as well. And (laughs) I ended up getting a part in the play, and he didn't. Wow. (laughs) So then I discovered that I enjoyed the acting bit. Mm -hmm. And so I had the art bit and the acting bit. And Jack Lawson, who is our uh, teacher for the theater bit of the college, 
he had started Renaissance fairs out in California, the medieval fairs. So we did a Renaissance fair at the community college, and I started looking up old Renaissance fairs, and I kept coming across Bartholomew fairs that were held on the uh, frozen Thames back in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And they kept talking about Punch and Judy shows. So we were trying to make this fair big. So I said, oh, I'll do a puppet show as well as the plays I was acting in. And also down the road from me, there were the, uh, was Ron Herrick. And he was a mom-and-pop marionette company that used to do the puppet shows for us in school, you know, in elementary school. Yeah. So I knew he lived down there, and it turns out he was also the um, Puppeteer of America organization's resident expert on marionette design. (laughs) So he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. And I went and knocked on his door expecting to be told to go away and said, I'd like to know how to make a puppet. And instead of telling me to go away, he and his wife invited me inside and took me down to the cellar and the walls were covered in marionettes all the way back from the 1920s. Wow. And I looked around this Aladdin's cave, and I said, you can have this much fun and live in a house this nice as well. (laughs) Could you teach me how to make a puppet? (laughs) Wow. And at that point, I realized I didn't need to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up because I didn't have to give up anything I liked doing as long as I kept doing puppets. I could sculpt, I could act, I could write, I could <laughs> there you go. It's, paint, it, yeah. you know, I could, I could do all the things I like doing. Huh. At, at what point were you noticed by Jim Henson? <laughs> Long time later. <laughs> <laughs> when I left university, I, I, I started off doing a bag puppet show. I traveled around in the Northeast and did uh, the true story of Prince George and the Dragon. Have you ever seen a movie called Dragonheart? Yes. Because Ben, the director of that, had seen my puppet show as a kid. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Basically, the whole story of Dragonheart was the story that I used to do as my puppet show. Are you serious? Wow. I know for a fact because he came to us over in London to get the original dragon made. He was going to have Henson's make him an animatronic huh. dragon. but So we built him one for the screen test, but then he went with CGI for the movie. Yeah. He didn't use our dragon. Wow, that's but very But I got to talk cool. to him and said, where did you grow up? And he said, New England. I said, do you ever go to Tort Tomorrow Fair? Oh, yeah, my folks always had a booth there. And I, I didn't <laughs> go any further. I didn't say, well, guess what? <laughs> you yeah. saw my puppet show, you dirty rat. I, w- I want some money. <laughs> I've always taken it as flattering if people like my ideas, you know. So. Yeah, and then they take something and make something their own. You know, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That means you, you managed to touch them, didn't Exactly, you? exactly. Yeah, and that's why I found, I, I reached my midlife crisis. And it's like, I've been playing with dolls my whole life. Why didn't I listen <laughs> to my mom and become an architect like she wanted me uh-huh, to? Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I started doing the conventions, and I get all these people coming up to me going, you were our childhoods, you were so important. We put on Muppets Christmas Carol every year to feel in the Christmas spirit while we decorate the tree. And I realized that 
I wasn't wasting my time. <laughs> nope, none whatsoever. You know, I don't have any money, but I, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what's important. Yeah. Yeah, you, you created a lot of amazing memories, especially with me, man. You had a lot of very memorable characters that I still love today. So thank you. Thank you for that. I've never sorted out the IMDb. I did not do ALF. I don't know why it says I did. Oh, really? <laughs> Does it really say but that I on there? I actually did a, a lot more stuff that you don't know about because I don't know how to... You're supposed to be able to edit that and okay. it. And I just gave up. What are a couple of the characters that we don't know about that we that we do know? Um, uh, Dinosaurs TV show. Yes, I love that show. I made the baby in Boss Richfield. Wow. Not the mama. Uh, my friend Nikki and I, we made the Teletubbies. Are you serious? That's incredible. I'm quite ashamed of them. Now. I, I would be too. <laughs> I had a mortgage and maintenance payment. Of so. course. <laughs> All right, you're forgiven they, then. They got... They, I'll give you a good story. They, they, they got bought by a Canadian company, uh-huh. and they, we found out. Nikki and I found out that they were going to all the production companies over in the UK, getting them to quote on making them Teletubbies. So I said, "Well, call them up, Nikki. Tell them we're not dead." You know? <laughs> <laughs> so she called them up and said, "We're not dead yet. If you'd like the people that made the Teletubbies to make your Teletubbies for you, you know." We still need to work. We don't have any money, you know, all this. So I get brought in there, and there's this producer who's all of maybe 32 years old, something like that. Mm. And she starts interviewing me like I'm some kid that just left (laughs) university, and I had to prove to her that I was worthy to make a Teletubby, you know, that I should get this job. So I kept from getting angry, which I do have a problem with especially in my older age. Mm-hmm. And I answered all of her questions, and then I said, is that everything you'd like to know? And she said, yes. And I said, am I allowed to ask questions? And she said, oh, sure, yeah, what would you like to ask? And I said, well, I work with Jim Henson, and we did Sesame Street and The Muppet Show, and Sesame Street taught kids how to speak Spanish, how to count, how to interact with each other. And I've watched these Teletubbies, and the only thing I've ever seen them teach a kid is how to look at their mommy and say, Mommy, buy me a Teletubby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, she flew into the whole psychobabble <laughs> that Ann Wood did in the first place to to get the job. You should have seen that everybody else, it, it was pitched by the BBC, everybody else had used their seed money to practically build the whole show. They'd made all the puppets. They'd done all of this to their concept to fill this time slot. Ann Wood spent the money supposedly getting analysts to talk to three-year-old children and have them say what they really wanted. And the BBC fell for the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, because this was modern and new. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. I got paid £7,000, and Wood got $198 million in the first year just on the merchandising, and she never felt the need to give a penny of that to me or Nikki, who turned her teddies into the cute, merchandisable things yeah. that they became. That's, a, that's insane. Sorry, it went bitter. Let's oh, no. To, no, it's, 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 it needs to be out there. It definitely <laughs> needs to be out there. And it's, it's a good... having to sign away your moral rights or they won't give you the job in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> this is the way they do do the business. So. Yep. So let's talk about some of my favorite work of yours. I 
The Dark okay. Crystal, one of the best, like, underrated movies that we definitely need to hear more about. Tell me about your work on Dark Crystal. Right. Well, I worked with Faz Fazakas, who claims he had nothing to do with Frank's inspiration for Fozzie Bear, even though the first four months I went to work for him, every morning I'd say, Faz, tell me a joke, and he'd have a new joke I'd never heard in my life <laughs> to tell me. <laughs> he was a fabulous, fabulous guy. Uh-huh. And he had worked out how to make Kermit ride a bicycle. Okay, yep, yep. And everybody from the first Mupper movie, everybody started talking about, this puppet can ride a bicycle. And, of course, Jim focused in on that. And I got a job at Henson's working with Foz because my dad had done radio control, so I knew how to plug in servos and modify transmitters and do all that sort of thing. And Jim basically said, whatever you can come up with, we'll give you the time and the budget to create. So it was the days of King Arthur's court. You know, I had the... <laughs> I had the world's best playpen <laughs> to go play in. Yeah, you did. So I'm Dark Crystal. Um, my credit is for the treasurous Kexi, but Brian Meal, who was another one of the puppeteers, he also did Barkley the Dog on Sesame Street. Yep, okay. So when he went back to Sesame Street, because we were still filming at that point, I took over his Gartham and the Mystic, Wow. And I was puddling. Well, we were all puddlings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the secretary from the production office was a puddling. <laughs> um, uh, Faz and I made the puppets for Jen and Kira. I had radio-controlled eyes and blinks and eyebrows. And then we also did fully radio-controlled versions of them for riding on the backs of the Landstriders and things. I'd do all the Waldos for them as well. Wow. I got a wonderful photograph of Jim operating one of our Waldos when they're flying down into the, trying to get into the castle and everything. But, huh. uh, as you're describing that, I'm just thinking about all the sets that you were on. I mean, you were on some remarkable sets, some very stunning-looking st- sets. What was that like being engulfed in that scenery that Henson and Lucas both made for those movies. Well, exactly. There was no CG around. Exactly. <laughs> so if you saw it, it was there to play in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it certainly it helps your performance. You know, the poor guys today, they have to pretend that they're in this fabulous extraterrestrial world when they're standing in a room with just green material yeah. across the floor and up the walls and a, yep. another ball on a stick that's the CG thing they're talking to. You know? Yeah, I don't know how they do that, honestly. To do. We, were, we were there. The reason Jim's films are so good, he had what he called the magic moment. And that was when you had a group of very talented professionals. You had all these fabulous sets that you were in. You had a fairly decent script with the cameraman and the lighting crew to film it all. And just in the process of trying to shoot the script, somebody would do something. And that would spark the next person, inspire them. Yeah. And you'd end up doing something better on camera than what you had been trying to get initially when you mm. turned the camera over. Wow. And Jim would take 
23 takes. I've never worked with another director because 23 takes cost money, but yep. Jim would do 23 takes just waiting for the spark to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I describe his films as an edited together series of magic moments. You know, that's pretty much the way it felt while we were filming it. And I hear he was a very soft-spoken guy, too, back then. Yep. The only one to talk softer than Jim was George Lucas. That's inc- that's crazy to think. Couldn't hear him at all. <laughs> 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 well, he surrounded himself with misfits, you know, with all the people yep. who <laughs> had not done very well in formal education, mm-hmm. but did have, you know, he could spot talent and ability. Yeah, I mean, it 100% worked, 100% worked. Yeah. And because he gave us this playpen to play in, we rewarded him. <laughs> yep. A hundred times over, you know, by being treated nice for a change instead of being picked on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would we would work until midnight and not even write the hours down, you know. We wouldn't claim uh-huh. overtime and everything just because we all wanted to make Dad happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thinking back on it all now, you know, he was very clever. <laughs> he he got us to do a lot more hours than he ever paid us for just to make that happy. There you go. That's why he was, he was I mean, he was very he was also at a time when most people were screwing you down to the minimum and all that. Yep. He um he would give Christmas bonuses, you know, if something did well. Yeah. Everybody got a Christmas bonus and the paycheck and everybody he 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 let it be known that he appreciated everything everybody was doing. Wow, that's great. And and that was very unusual mm-hmm. for that time and totally non-existent since that time. You also did some work on Labyrinth, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. What did you do on Labyrinth? I want to go back to my school. I'm on the, the wall of honor at my school, and I, I've been working on this speech that I do to the kids, you know, about where I started in that school and where I've ended up. And one of the things was about David Bowie because I'm just down the road from Woodstock here. And David Bowie was a multimillionaire, but he had a house up in Woodstock. So I just wanted to tell the local kids, you know, you don't, if somebody who could live anywhere chooses to live right near your school, then maybe you don't need to feel like you have to go clear to California to be successful because you actually live in a place that other people want to be at. So, you know, you might find a way to earn money right here and not go anywhere. Yep, that's so true. be happy. So, yeah, I... um, (laughs) My credit on that one, this was Jim... I was known as a young man. I liked ladies, you know, and um, so... Jim, his sense of humor, my credit on the movie was Tim Rose, The Knockers, <laughs> which were the two door knockers in the yep. film. But uh, the story I like to tell about, they asked me, uh, we had all the goblins. You know, there were like 20 of them, weren't there? You know, quite a few goblins yep, yeah. in the movie. And so they asked me to design an animatronic mechanism, a um eye movements and blinks they could fit in any one of the goblins and I said well don't be ridiculous there's too many parameters you know blah 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 but I say okay I've been asked to do it so I'll do this and I sat down and I thought about it and I said well one of the problems is the sculptors always sculpt something and they just go into the wacky stacks and they choose their own diameter and all that so I said okay if we 
make the sculptors have one of four eye sizes. Then we can do a mechano set of parts, which we can bolt together based on those four eye sizes. And it's still a lot of parts, but they can be mass produced. And then we can, you know, start making all these eye blinks. Mm-hmm. Well, it worked so well that I ended up tearing up all my drawings because I just you stupid fool, you just put yourself out of work. They can bring in kids, pay them minimum wage, and <laughs> voila, you have an animatronic designer who just bolt the bits together. <laughs> so I destroyed all the evidence <laughs> at the end of the labyrinth. But, uh, yeah, so I did that for it. Um, I got to do a bit of puppeteering, but... Um, I left Muppets at the end of Labyrinth because my problem was I was too successful as an animatronics designer. And I really proud of it. I got it, as I told you, I got into the puppets because I didn't need to decide what I wanted to be when I yeah. grew up. So I did like the performance as well. I mean, the actual the building of animatronics is the most mind-numbingly frustrating. Yeah, yeah thing you know to take raw materials and to make it into something that moves and looks alive is very difficult to do <laughs> I bet. to do it well <laughs> but unfortunately i was really good at it to the point where when i kept trying to puppeteer for jim oh i went to jim it was after labyrinth when we were going to do fraggle rock in uh, canada and i said jim i'd really like to puppeteer on the show and he said, well, he felt that my value to the company was the animatronics. Hmm. And as a young guy, I thought he was telling me I wasn't a good enough puppeteer. And it's only with age and looking backwards that I realized what he was actually saying was he could get 10 guys to puppeteer. What he couldn't find was somebody who could do the animatronics as good as me. That's true. I don't want to sound... <laughs> I'm not big-headed at all. I've only realized as an old man that I, what I took for granted was actually something that was really hard to do, and there wasn't a lot of people doing it. Exactly. <laughs> so, and he wanted me to keep making those bits because Kermit riding on the bicycle was what got everybody talking about his movies. Mm-hmm. So, but I got angry and I left. But you did not do yeah. too well after the fact. You know, you did amazing, amazing stuff after the Henson Company. Well, okay. It's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so, I go back to my apartment in New York City that I hadn't been in for years because I'd been spending all my time doing gym stuff over in England. Yeah. Kicking myself in the butt, going, "What the hell? You think you were, you were working for the best puppet company? All you want to do is puppets. You were working for the biggest puppet company in the world, and you quit. You stupid idiot! You know." So I'm <laughs> running around my apartment, unemployed, hitting my head against the wall, and the telephone ring, and it was my friend Mike McCormick. He had been working with Phil Tippett on um, Blue Harvest: Horror Beyond Imagination. <laughs> He, he was working on Return of the Jedi in the workshop with Phil. Mm-hmm. And he'd done the original size noodles, and he'd done her as a classic marionette. And, of course, she was five foot tall and weighed 70 pounds. And he lost his balance. He fell off the scaffolding, and he broke his arm. Wow. So he was meant to... He, he had made... Um, him and Tony had made Salacious Crumb. Mm-hmm. 
and he was supposed to be puppeteering Sice Noodles in the Jabba's Palace, and he had a broken arm, so he couldn't do the movie. And he called me up and he said, Tim, um, if you can get out here to California, maybe you can get a place in Phil's workshop. And I certainly needed a job, but uh, the producer who called me didn't want to pay for me to come out to California just for an interview. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I'll do you a deal. I said, I'll pay for my own ticket out there, and if you don't want me to work for you, then it's no skin off your nose. But if you hire me in Phil's workshop, then you'll reimburse me for the plane ticket. And as a producer, he liked that straight away. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> they like doing deals, producers. Uh-huh. So I was doing a deal with him. So, you know, so he flew me out here. And in fact, they thought, oh, yeah, we want this guy on our movie. And um, so I took over from Mike and made Admiral Akbar. Wow. I mean, that that was fate right there. Yeah. Uh, do you know who... Um, uh, it's also fate that doing these conventions, uh, the Sharpies are making us all get Alzheimer's, <laughs> you know? The, That's what it is. All right. Rick Baker. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I had been working with him over in England uh, doing uh, Greystoke Lord of the Apes. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this close-up ape. And they, at the time, animatronics was at the point, so... You'd have a full body suit walk around character, but because the person was in there, there wasn't much room for the mechanics. So then they would take a close up, like head and shoulders of the character, and mount it on a tabletop and stick 50 cables in it and mm. make all the eyes move and the cheeks wiggle and all that. Mm. And I said, well, if instead of mounting it on the table, you make it as a puppet and let me carry it around. I can get more movement out of it for you. And they told me to go back to my workbench. They were the bosses, and I ended up getting fired off the movie because they didn't like... <laughs> you know, I'd been working with the Muppets where everybody could have ideas, and Jim would say, run with it, and these people just sort of said, it's my way or the highway, and hmm. I went down the highway. Yeah. <laughs> so I got fired off of that one, and now I'm in Phil's workshop, and they're doing the same thing with Akbar, where we're doing the walk around, and the second one's getting mounted on the tabletop. And I just went, "Oh my God, I've just been fired for doing this. Out of my, out of my mind." <laughs> yes, I am. I've got to do it because I know I'm right. So I go to Phil and I say, "Phil, instead of mounting it on the tabletop, let me pick it up and wear it and move it around." And I showed him, you know, how much movement I could get before we had any animatronics in it. Wow. And unlike Rick, Phil said, "We'll do it then." <laughs> Wow. So the Akbar, I mean, the one you say, you say, and it's a trap and all that, uh-huh. was a hand puppet, you know, he wasn't a full body suit. Wow, that's remarkable. I mean, most of what you see was, was my hand puppet. Huh. I had a great one. You know, they brought me back in to, to do the Akbar for The Force Awakens. Yep. So I'm in the workshop getting my carbon fiber helmet cast, you know, my life cast for my carbon fiber helmet and everything. And I go over and see Gustav and say, hey, how are you getting on with the animatronics for this? You know, He's brilliant, Gustav. He's better than I ever was. But So he's he's saying we're having a real hard time with the eyes. We can't work out how they did the eyes for Akbar because it worked so good. And I said, well, why don't you call the guy up and talk to him, the guy that made him? <laughs> they said, 
Do you know who that was? Oh, man. What's his number? How do we get a hold of him? <laughs> I just stood there and said, he was me, asshole. Because <laughs> 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 I'd turned him up out of, um, what do you call it here, plexiglass, pers- perspex. Uh, I made him on a on a wood lathe. <laughs> wow. What was it like coming back as Akbar after so many years? I, I, I know they, we didn't get the right send-off that he definitely deserved, but what was it like when you're first back on the set as Akbar? I can honestly say I have never done so much signing while on set before. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> all, all the stormtroopers were like 22-year-old extras, yep, you know. Yep, yep. And I'd be standing there, and all of a sudden this stormtrooper would come up, and this little Star Wars book would come out from somewhere in his costume. Could you just sign this for me? Wow. <laughs> so that was that was strange. I bet. I, I was doing a convention in Australia, and they had announced that the film was going to be done, and all the fans were going, is Akbar in the movie? Will you be Akbar? And I just laughed and said, I have no idea, you know, I'm not on the inside here, guys. I have no idea if Akbar's in this next movie. And if he is, it's going to be some 24-year-old kid like I was when yep. I did Akbar. Yep. It's not going to be, you know, they don't want a 60-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then uh, I got an email from my friend Brian, who I'd worked with for 20 years, 30 years, who ended up being BB-8. Okay. And he wanted to talk to me, but he couldn't talk to me until I signed an NDA. But I couldn't sign an NDA because I was in a hotel in Australia, and I didn't have any way to print it off to sign it and send it. You know, so this went on and on. And finally, I found out that he was wanting to ask me, did I want to be Akbar again? And of course, I said, of course I do. Mm-hmm. But the first thing I did after I got off the phone was run up to my workshop and pull my bicycle out and pump the tires up because... <laughs> I know how hard it is actually doing one of these costumes. Oh, yeah. And I was not going to die in Akbar. <laughs> I, was... <laughs> I wanted to do it, but I needed to do some serious reconditioning before yeah, I, I, I bet. spent the day in there. You know. Yeah, and you, you never think about that, watching that, how much you guys have to do. I, I tell this, uh, oh, I'll tell you the story, and then you can have the the Disney guys tell you you have to take it back. <laughs> yes, out please. Yeah. I was doing um, Milky Bar in uh, Rogue One. Uh, you had Admiral Rodus and then his two assistants, and I was the assistant on the right. Okay. And my friend Aiden was the assistant on the left, so we're the three calamari that are on the bridge in that movie. Uh-huh. And we were doing this classic thing, which didn't make it into the film, but we were doing a, a Star Trek thing, you know, Tilt camera left, all go right. Tilt camera right, all go left. You know, this sort of thing. Pretending that we were being blown up by the Death Star. And I can see through my right nostril that when they shouted explosion, Aiden had thrown himself clear over the back of his chair and onto his back and all this. And I was like, God damn it, he's not going to die better than me. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's the same age as I am, uh-huh. you know. So we have this sort of little competition between us, you know. Who's the best full body suit man? <laughs> All that. So he does it. So on the next take, when <laughs> they shout an explosion, I threw myself sideways out of mine and backwards over Rodus's chair, pretending like my back was broken and everything. But we just had like a little scrim across the back of the, the mouths. 
and that gets covered in sweat, so the air can't get through it anymore. <laughs> oh, no. And if the RC closes the mouth, then you don't get any air anyway. Anyway, I couldn't breathe, and my heart was up to about 130, 140 beats. And I go over to the AD and I said, I need my dresser, I need some air in here, I need to do all this. And this 24-year-old kid just looks at me and says, go sit down, we haven't finished filming yet. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, you don't understand, I'm dying in here. (laughs) 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 I'd be damned if I was going to die for one of these stupid full body suit characters. (laughs) Just because we hadn't finished filming yet. (laughs) I mean, I shouldn't have been allowed in in the first place, basically. If they, if they gave physicals, I never would yeah. have been given the job. Oh, man, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back in time just a little bit more and talk about that set of uh, Jabba the Hutt's um, palace when you were doing Salacious Crumb. And uh, did you get to know mm-hmm. Carrie pretty well? Because you guys were so close uh, for that scene, at well, least. Well, you've already interviewed Mark Dobson, so I don't I did. know why you want to I did. hear about Salacious. <laughs> Because he's a great character, and it takes both of you to do it. Uh, Salacious was my favorite character Mm -hmm. because he was a hand puppet. Uh, You know, unlike Akbar, where somebody else had to help you get dressed, I could just pick up Salacious and go and entertain the crew, you know, or have him pop up behind the cameraman or just, just have fun with him, you know. George had named him. When we were still in the workshop, he would come around like 9 or 10 o'clock at night and hang out with us and he'd look at different stuff we were working on and he really enjoyed coming up with names you know he he did that with Akbar while we were there and Salacious and I wasn't sure what Salacious meant so I looked it up in the dictionary and I think it was something like someone who gets enjoyment from the misfortunes of others that's perfect. So I said, okay, well, salacious by name, salacious by nature. And then he became my sort of evil alter ego. <laughs> and when every time anybody got fed to the Rancor Pit Monster, salacious was the cheerleader on the edge of the pit going, yep. oh, yeah, I can hear the bones crunch. <laughs> yep. You know, and all that. So that's where all that came from, his little maniacal laugh and everything. <laughs> that's awesome. And... Uh, we had, you remember the Adams Family TV show? Of course, yep. I grew up watching that, and I always remembered Gomez Adams and Morticia, and he'd start kissing the back of her hand, and oh, Academia, I love you, and going yep. up her arm yep. and everything. And then the doorbell would ring, and he'd get out a piece of chalk and mark where he'd gotten to, you know. <laughs> well, when Carrie was in her metal bikini there, and we were in between takes, Salacious used to start down at her ankle <laughs> oh, no. and start kissing his way up her <laughs> no. calf, you know. And, oh, God, me, I do love you. And you can get away with that stuff with a puppet. Of course, yeah. <laughs> if I'd is, done it, yep. Jerry, I would have yep. been fired off that instantly. But, you know, Salacious got away with it, and she found it very funny and amusing. Oh, that's great. And I'm... they'd call turnover, and I'd go, oh, God, me, I shall return. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she had a sense of humor to actually enjoy that. It's cool. Oh, yeah, no, she's great. There's tons of time you got to kill and entertain yourself on set, you know? Yep. <laughs> it's not all fun. There's like 90 hours of boredom to every one hour of fully on and in the <laughs> character. And <laughs> now, you, you also did work on Howard the Duck, where you, you helped out with 
his animatronics, right, for Howard the Duck? I was a master puppeteer. A puppeteer. <laughs> um, what happened was, right, you, you know I'd worked with Phil Tippett in the workshop and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got fired. I'll tell you the story. You don't have enough tape for the whole story. <laughs> um, the person building Howard was Elaine Baker. Okay. Who was the ex-wife of Rick Baker. Uh-huh. Who was the met gentleman who'd fired me off of Greystoke. <laughs> yep. And he fired me off of Greystoke because he worked really late. So my girlfriend, who then became my wife, and I would drive Elaine back to Hampstead each night. And I'd seen some stuff in the workshop that everybody was getting really upset about. And I said, you know, you don't need to get upset. It's actually really simple. You move that pivot point by five millimeter, and what's jamming up will work, and we don't need to throw out what the Brits have made to build it the way the Californians want to. Mm -hmm. We can all work together. However that translated, by the next morning, Elaine had said what I'd said in the car to her. She said it to Rick, and that's the day I got fired off the production. I'd crashed my motorcycle on the way to work that morning, so all in all, it was like not a good day in my life, you know, but... He came out and he said, do you know what shit on this workbench belongs to you and what shit belongs to the company? I said, yes, I do, Rick. He said, well, you take your shit and you get the hell out of here. I said, <laughs> okay. And I started backing up and my wife, you know, my motorbike was dead, but she had her VW there. and So I was carrying my boxes out and putting them in her car. And he came back out of the office and I didn't think he could be any angrier. And he came out and he was even more angry. He said, don't you even want to know why you've been fired off this production? And I looked at him, and honestly, this guy, you know, when he designed something, most people would give you a pencil sketch. Uh-huh. Rick would do an entire finished oil painting of the gorilla <laughs> he wanted you to make. Oh, man. That could hang in a museum. It was just so beautiful. And he would do that overnight while the rest of us were sleeping. So, you know, the guy, he had talent that other people don't even begin to have. Mm-hmm. And I said, Rick, you are the most amazing person I have ever worked with in my life. And if you don't think that my personality fits in with this group, then I think you're right and I should go. And I left. <laughs> huh. And years later, he um, came back around and we were all friends again. Oh, that, that's that's good to hear. Sorry, I ran off side track. Oh, no, that's, that's so, a great story. This was the background. Elaine Baker is now making the duck for Howard the Duck. She and her new boyfriend. She had not made anything that worked. So George came to Phil Tippett and said, what are we going to do about this? You know, we've got like two months to go, and we don't have a duck. <laughs> he, Howard is actually the leading man in the <laughs> yeah. movie. You know, we don't have a duck. And... um Phil said, well, you need somebody like that guy that did Akbar. Huh. Who is that? Tim Rose. Well, where is he? He's in England. Well, get him over here. That's awesome. <laughs> so I get contacted um, to come over to help out with Howard and Howard the Duck. And we brought along um, Polish guy, Tad Schnofsky, who I, I saw recently. I looked him up. I haven't seen him since then but he stayed in california and he did very well indeed (laughs) 
I should have stayed working with him instead of going back to England. But um, we had three weeks or four weeks, I think. And I'd been there a week. And next thing I knew, they'd fired Elaine. Elaine was convinced that she got fired because I insisted she oh, be no. fired because I was angry at her for yep. getting me fired. Yep. And it... It, nothing could be further from the truth. I've never played that game. I know the Californians all do it, and that's the way they do it in Hollywood, but yep. I don't play that game. You know, I never have, never will. Had nothing to do with that. But what happened was I had three weeks to turn the whole duck around with an entire crew that had been hired by and was loyal to the woman who just told them all that I got her fired. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so you can imagine how much fun I was having oh, trying to yeah. do the job I'd been hired to do. Wow. <laughs> anyway, Tad and I, we rebuilt the duck. I made a puppet version for the close-ups because that's the way you did it then. You know, you had the full-body suit and the puppet version. And then I was the master puppeteer. It took It took five of us. Well, six of us, if you count the other little kid, but yeah. Ed, Ed Gale was the duck. The other kid, Jordan, he was a cute kid, but he wasn't old enough to do it. You know, mm -hmm. full body suit work. <laughs> yeah. you got to want to suffer. And, yep. You know, he, he was still a kid. So there were five of us to keep the duck alive, but uh, I was the master puppeteer. So I got to tell the other four what to do. I don't care if people say I enjoy that movie and I loved it as a, as a kid. Did you know Robin Williams was supposed to do the voice for Howard? No, I did not. <laughs> wow. Okay. So we're shooting the scene with um, Howard and Leah up in the the loft in her place, you know, when things are all yep. getting a little amorous. Yep. <laughs> yep. Do you know how long it took to work out how to get the hackles to go up on his head when he was getting it? Oh, man, I, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> it all had to be done in camera in those days. You know, oh, we had yep. no CG to yep. do it for you. Anyway, so we're, we're puppeteering that scene. And around the corner comes Robin Williams because they're, they're showing him around, you know, the, the film that he's going to voice over. And I had always been told that I was just doing the guide track for the duck and Robin was doing the voice. Mm -hmm. So when he came around the corner, I said, well, sit down and have a go at the puppet controls, because if you can do that as well, I can go back to England and marry my pregnant fiance. Because <laughs> my, my Scottish girlfriend had come to visit me and um, we had another bridesmaid by the time I got off the film and went back to England. So, <laughs> Wow. Anyway. So he sits down, but he must have been watching me before I knew he was there, because the sound guy sees Robin sitting there, so he goes, oh, it's Robin Williams, he's going to say something funny, so he cranks up the volume on the microphone. He starts doing a voice for the duck that sounded like me doing the duck, huh. and the director screams out, Rose, you f***ing how many times have I told you not to talk over that <laughs> microphone when I'm out here directing? And the first AD ran over to him and said, that's not Tim Rose, that's Robin Williams. <laughs> and quick as that, he goes, Robin, love what you're doing. Oh, man. <laughs> and Robin turned to me and he says, um, is that the way things are around here? Huh. And I looked and I said, well, to be honest with you, he's in a pretty good mood today. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, thank you very much. And he, he walked away and he kept walking. He never did the movie. Oh, man. 
Yeah, I, I never knew that. Now, fast forward 15 years. I'm doing a children's TV show, a live show over in England with Balgit, this puppet character. And Robin's doing his bus and truck for Mrs. Doubtfire. Yep. And I get sent up to London with my puppet to interview him for Mrs. Doubtfire. So this is 15 years later. We get all this from the people who are protecting Mr. Williams from all us riffraff. You Mm -hmm. know, um, you've got 15 minutes with him. If you don't get shot what you need, we pull the VHS out and you go with that and you have to edit it because you don't get any more time. So make sure you don't waste a minute, you know. So all this pressure is on and everything. And I walk in there and I go, Mr. Williams, I know you don't remember me. And I only got that far. And he looked me straight in the eye and he went, Rose, you f***ing Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. And I said, I always wondered if that had anything to do. And he said, oh, life is too short to work for people like that. That's awesome. And if only I had realized that at the time myself. But, you know. <laughs> yep, exactly. No, that is an incredible story. He was amazing. Yeah, no. So I threw out my script. And my puppet, when they turned over the camera, my puppet looked up at him and he said, Oh, Captain, my Captain, <laughs> I've only got one question for you. And he says, What's that? And he said, Please, pretty please, with sugar on top, could you say good morning, Vietnam, just once? <laughs> <laughs> and I was supposed to be interviewing him about Mrs. Doubtfire, yeah. you know. So he gets a big broad grin across his face and he goes, sound guys ready? And they were all ready because everybody in the room wanted to hear this guy do it, you know, be in the room while he was doing Good Morning Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And he just laid back and rolled off with a big one. And I went, oh, well, I'm getting fired again, you know, as I walked back to (laughs) work with my little VHS. But they decided I'd actually captured something very special on camera and Uh I was allowed to stay working. (laughs) That's very cool. Well, all right, Tim, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about, maybe a convention or anything? Well, if you go to www.admiralakbar.co.uk, then my wife takes care of (laughs) (laughs) That That has all my um, appearances for conventions coming up. Yeah, and I'll link that in the interview as well. Like I said, what what I'm proudest of is the fact that in a world that has to pigeonhole you, you know, you're the guy that makes the animatronics, so we need somebody to perform mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I have actually gotten to carry the whole process through from design to performance Yeah. as many times as I managed to. <laughs> I did one a few years back for the BBC. It was Wizards versus Aliens, just a, a kid's program huh. that they did over in the UK, and they wanted me to make Jabba the Hutt for them. And I said, well, obviously I can't do that because he don't belong to us. He mm-hmm. belongs some, you know. But what they meant, they wanted a big over-the-top alien character. So he made this guy. He was 12 foot tall by 15 foot wide. And that was just his head and shoulders. Hmm. And he came down to Earth to um, uh, capture wizards because Harry Potter was popular. You know, that's how yep. clever the show was. Okay. Well, We'll combine Star Wars with Harry Potter and come up with <laughs> Wizards versus Aliens, you know. So he had gotten so gluttonous that he'd eaten himself into his spaceship and he couldn't get out. Hmm. But the truth was that meant all we had to do was build the head and shoulders and not show the rest of the character because we didn't have enough budget to build anything that big. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but 
because I was getting to puppeteer it, I made sure I was going to be comfortable, you know. So I had my little uh, rally driver's car seat around the back. I did him like the um, Audrey out of uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Okay. And I operated the head with the legs and had levers for the mouth. And then the eyes and the eyebrows were radio controlled. And there were other puppeteers on the tentacles and everything. But I, I joked that, you know, I had my overstuffed easy chair back there and I had my liquor cabinet to the right and my TV set to the left and all my scripts so I didn't have to memorize things. I've never been any good at memorizing dialogue. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry, I ramble. You see, you no, I love a question about I... one thing and before you finish, you're <laughs> in an entirely different world 30 years apart. I love it. I mean, I, I bet you have so many amazing just stories to tell, and I would just sit here and listen to every single one of them. Oh, like... I know a good timely one. Okay. Okay. A labyrinth story, the day we set Kenny Baker on fire. Okay. We had the whole goblin battle scene that we were filming, and uh, Kenny and Mike, a lot of the little guys, it, I, I knew all of them from Dark Crystal because, of course, they were the walk-around versions of the Skeksis yeah. and Mike was Agra and yeah. you know, all this. So we'd worked together for years before um, we ever worked on Star Wars together. You know. And uh, so Kenny was one of the goblins and one of the special effects guys. They had those little cannonball puppets that they'd sit there with the knees shaking and then they'd get put in the cannonball and fired over the battle and that. And they'd put these magnesium strips into this one cannonball so that as he flew over set it would look like an old Buck Rogers spaceship uh -huh. with the sparks and the smoke and all that, you know. Well, one of these magnesium strips came out and fell onto Kenny's costume. And we got it all on camera. He went up like a Christmas tree. Oh, my God. The, the, the character was about four foot tall, and next thing we knew there was a 12-foot tall Christmas oh, of flame. Now, the guy who had rigged the magnesium, he knew the power of magnesium. You know, it burns it at 2,000 C. So <laughs> <laughs> its ability to set things on fire. And he had been standing right next to the camera, as close as you can get to the shot. And when Kenny went up, he immediately ran in, knocked him to the ground, and rolled him around in the dirt and mm -hmm. put the fire out. Yeah. But, of course, Kenny was buried so far in his costume, he didn't even know he had been on fire. All he knew was that somebody was wanting a piece of him. And the little guys can be very feisty. And Kenny jumped up off the ground with the camera still running and started knocking nine bells out of the guy who just saved his life. Because oh <laughs> all he knew was somebody pushed him down and was <laughs> trying to wrestle with him. So he was going to show him who's boss. <laughs> oh. And Jim always let us come to dailies. <laughs> and, you know, we watched the other stuff we shot, but we must have replayed that clip. <laughs> Play it again one more time. <laughs> I need we to see that. We couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> oh, man. Why isn't that out there for me to see? Because you can see? laugh. You know, nobody died, right? Exactly. <laughs> In those days, when nobody died, you could laugh about it. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. <laughs> I got a million of them. <laughs> Seriously, I want to thank you personally because without your hard work my childhood would be missing a lot so thank you so much for all your time today thank you for all your hard work throughout the years it's been it was amazing okay one last story uh, go ahead i get invited to the netherlands for the dutch opening for the last jedi uh -huh. 
at the convention beforehand, one of the Dutch boys on that had done the CGI for the ships coming out of the mountain and chasing across to attack them, you know, with the white sand and turning red and yeah. all that. Yep, yep. And then, so I met the guy who put me out of work, you know. <laughs> then I'm watching the show, and Yoda's talking to Luke, and he said, you must remember, the master will always be surpassed by the apprentice. And I thought, that kid, as a kid, he watched the stuff I did in the movies, yeah. and I inspired the guy who put me out of a job to come do the job in the first place. How stupid was I? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's but I love the fact that Yoda said it all right in one sentence. <laughs> Good old Frank. He always gets it right. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> that's it. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Tim. Seriously, this is a great time chatting with you. I loved it. Yeah, I haven't, I've got to sign up so I can listen to Lou. I want to there you go. What he had to say. There you go. That was a good interview. Thanks for listening to that Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check him out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.